Hello, greetings. Thank you for the gift of spending some time with us as we open up the scriptures and seek to better understand what God has made known, that we can glorify him in Jesus. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Not sure that if you've noticed, but we live in a time and an age that seems to be infatuated with apocalyptic doom. How many movies in the past few years have we seen where the earth is all but destroyed? Uh, living here in Los Angeles, it's kind of the trope that we expect. We're just looking for our fair city to be destroyed somehow in, in, in movies, whether it's uh, by uh, an earthquake or a tsunami or some huge storm or alien invasion or something. Los Angeles is definitely going to get it, right? And all these movies are about earthquakes, ice storms, aliens, zombies is a big one, uh, so on and so forth. In many respects, this obsession with the end of the world is a statement of anxiety, probably, as we live here in what's being called late capitalism, because deep down we recognize that uh, the life that we're living is about as good as it gets. Um, sure, there are many some ways in which life could be improved, but uh, the life that we live now is something our ancestors could only dream of. And therefore, if it's going to go anywhere, we're deeply afraid, whether we want to admit it or not, that it's going to go down. And uh, so we we try to postpone uh, the anxiety in our heads about disaster by watching movies about disaster. But we should allow the words of the prophet Amos, in Amos 5, 18 through 20, to ring in our ears. Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. Why would you have the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Here Amos tells Israel they should not be looking forward to a day of Yahweh. If you're just joining us recently, uh, when we speak of God in the Old Testament, using the divine name, um, yod heh vav -Heh in Hebrew, uh, Yahweh is the most likely uh, pronunciation of that. You may have seen it as Jehovah in some places. In many Bibles, it's just capitalized Lord. And so today we're going to look at a day of Yahweh. What is a day of Yahweh? What examples of days of Yahweh are there in Scripture? Um, what days of Yahweh still exist now that Jesus is Lord in Christ? Uh, and if that's true, might we experience a day of Yahweh? And is the day of Yahweh the end of the world? Let's open this created Scripture and see. It's the prophets who speak to Israel about a day of Yahweh. And as we see from Amos, it's not a fun thing. Uh, the day of Yahweh is described as a day of judgment, a day in which Yahweh would pour out his wrath and anger upon people. In Isaiah 13, 6 and 9, it's Isaiah 61, 2, Jeremiah 46, 10, and Lamentations 2, 23. Based on the beginning of uh, Amos' prophecies in Amos 1 and 2, it's, it's very likely that Israel got used to hearing messages about days of Yahweh as judgments against the nations. And it's not just here in Amos, uh, Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 46. Uh, there's going to be a day of Yahweh against Babylon. Ezekiel will talk about uh, one coming against Egypt and against other nations would experience it as well. Uh, the, this was a, a, a common thing to hear that God was going to judge the nations for what they were going to do to Israel. Um, and then later, as, as Amos chapter 2 really gets going, uh, we have the, the shocking turnaround 
Israel, but something that we're used to. Because when we read about the day of Yahweh, uh, we would think about it generally in terms of the judgment God have against his own people. Uh, how Amos and Hosea warn about the day of Yahweh coming against uh, the kingdom of Israel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel will warn against the day of Yahweh coming against Judah. And we can look at major events that in scripture are described as days of Yahweh that would come against Israel and against the nations. So in Isaiah 7, there's this prophecy that the Arameans and the Israelites would no longer be a danger to the kingdom of Judah when a child was born and reached the age of, of accountability. And indeed, in between 732 and 722, um, the Assyrians came and destroyed both of those kingdoms, so they're no longer going in, uh, entities anymore. Also, what Hosea and Amos had warned about, there was the day against Assyria itself. Uh, in 609, prophesied in Isaiah 10, 5-19, and by Nahum. The day of Yahweh against Judah that happened in 586, Jeremiah and Ezekiel primarily. The day of Yahweh against Egypt in 525 that Ezekiel foresaw. The day of Yahweh against Tyre that would eventually come in 333 as Ezekiel saw. Um, the vindication of the Son of Man, Jesus, against Jerusalem in the year 70 that he spoke of in Matthew 24 and many other places. So these are very real phenomena. Uh, a lot of times Israel thought it would not happen, but it, it, it would happen. It did not happen perhaps when uh, they thought it would. Uh, they thought it would always be delayed, but the end would come. But what is a day of Yahweh? What does it look like? We can see from what happened in these instances that we just mentioned. Uh, what were the events that precipitated that were considered the day of Yahweh? So, for instance, uh, a land might experience a series of droughts and famines, pestilences or plagues. In Jeremiah 14.12 and 24.10, Ezekiel 5.17, these are prophesied that they would come against the land. The land would then be overrun by an enemy force that would destroy it in Ezekiel 5 and 14.17. Uh, the whole book of Joel is a warning about a potential day of Yahweh. And Joel, in his prophecy, uh, sees a army. Um, it could be a locust army. We, we may not think of locusts as that apocalyptically, but when your, your uh, future <laughs> is based upon the green plants in that field, a swarm of locusts coming, eating it all up, is very apocalyptic. It also could, though, be a metaphor for you know, for an army, a Syrian army, Babylonian army, or something of that sort. And we see the whole thing there, the warning uh, that this day would come, the devastation that it would come, the, the, the call to repentance that maybe God would not bring this upon them if, if they repented, and he might actually even leave a blessing. And then the indications that the day of judgment would come and uh, hope of restoration extended to the people of God. And in all of these things, in all of these ways that the day of Yahweh would manifest, uh, he's working through natural forces and human armies to the point where we can talk about all of the various historical events that we just mentioned, uh, the collapse of the Aramean and Israelite uh, nations, um, the fall of Assyria, the fall of Judah, uh, the Cambyses' defeat of Egypt, um, Alexander's conquering of Tyre, uh, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, and explain them entirely in terms of um, climate, um, biological disasters, uh, social political issues, uh, and things of that nature. We don't even necessarily explicitly see the hand of God in it. That doesn't mean that God wasn't involved. 
but that's the way God has worked with everything else. If you if you think about it, uh, God is very subtle in how he does things. And therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that in these forms of judgment that that he would work in a similar way as well. That leads to a good question. How does God accomplish this day of Yahweh and for what end? Well, he might actually use his powers over the forces of the universe to cause specific climatological events to take place. Uh, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, locust storms, drought, floods, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the Bible is full of times when God does these things. In Genesis 6-9, through 9, that flood was not a quote-unquote natural flood. Uh, in Exodus 6-14, through 14, the whole idea of the plagues upon Egypt uh, were that they came um, by uh, the word of God through Moses and Aaron. Uh, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, the drought in Israel was precipitated the word of Elijah and was ended by uh, Elijah's prayer. And so there are these are direct action things. And so there may be aspects of these days of Yahweh that God brings in and specifically does uh, through the natural forces. But it's also very possible that God has also created the earth and that it has within it certain trends and responses to behaviors that might precipitate ecological crises, um, that long-term climate trends you can see. And uh, we can see when, the, when it gets warmer and more crops can be grown, uh, human populations tend to grow. If it starts getting colder again, um, you, you tend to have a crisis because now you have too many mouths, too little food. Um, you get uh, animals, when you get animals and humans in close contact, especially if animals and humans have not been in close contact uh, because you've further in the forest or you're domesticating a new animal, uh, you will have interactions that will lead to diseases and pandemics. Also, when humans meet groups of humans they have not met before, uh, you have similar things that can take place. Uh, when humans overexploit a resource, uh, they may go extinct. Um, there's all kinds of creatures that we see mentioned in the Bible in, in the Holy Land that aren't there anymore, lions and things of that nature, because they were hunted to extinction. And the same with humans. Uh, God may cause certain nations to rise and others to fall. We see this uh, established in Jeremiah. Um, but they do so in terms of, of how human nations operate. Um, as they have done to others, so it will be done to them. That's kind of the whole idea that God extends out in Habakkuk. When Habakkuk uh, wants to see judgment on, on Judah for all their sins, then finds out it's going to happen at the hand of the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk is horrified because, well, this is an even less righteous nation. And God basically explains it in terms of as they have done to others, it will be done to them. As they have put their trust in foreign policy, so they will reap the fruit of their trust in foreign policy. And uh, one day they will become an even bigger, badder guy who will do to the oppressors of Israel, to the Chaldean Babylonians, what uh, the Chaldean Babylonians had done to others. And so the day of Yahweh is a day of revelation and humiliation. It's a day when the pride of man is lowered, when God's justice is dispensed, when people see their weaknesses and frailty exposed, when uh, God has rendered his judgment. And uh, it is therefore indeed a day you do not want to see. It is a day of darkness. It is not light. Well, that's the way it was for Israel. What about since Jesus has become Lord in Christ? Because Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his reign in his kingdom are cosmologically profound events. Uh, they lead to a lot of changes in how God has worked through mankind uh, and among mankind, as we can see in Colossians 1, 12-23, and many other places in the New Testament. Uh, so do we have any confidence that there would be uh, days of Yahweh today? Well, we saw that there was... Uh, a vindication of Jesus, the Son of Man, a visitation of God, so to speak, to uh, Israel in the in the year 70, when um, the decisions they had set in motion uh, around surrounding Jesus uh, 
and his death, uh, choosing the insurrectionist as opposed to the plan of God, uh, reaches its full end in which um, they rebel against Rome and Rome steamrolls them. Uh, it's a fulfillment of Matthew 24 and a host of other passages. The visitation of judgment by God on his people, very much in the old style, very much a day of Yahweh. Uh, and to be honest, most of the talk of judgment in the New Testament, Matthew 24 and 25, the rest of the passage, in Acts 17, 30-31, Romans 2, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 2 Thessalonians 1, Revelation 20 uh, through 22, really focuses on the final judgment day, when the Lord Jesus returns, the day of resurrection. Um, that's the focus of judgment, the ultimate day of Yahweh, so to speak. And we certainly don't want to diminish that, dismiss, dismiss that or diminish that. That is very big and powerful. But when we look in Revelation, we, John is given a vision by Jesus that really sees patterns of judgment for Rome that are really interestingly spoken of in terms of these days of Yahweh of old. We already mentioned Revelation 20, really verse 11 through chapter 22, verse 6. That's the least ambiguous judgment scene that looks like a final judgment. Uh, but it's after a whole series of events. Uh, Revelation 11, 15 through 19 may be a parallel to it. Uh, but before the millennium of, of the rest of John, of Revelation 20, John is shown judgments that are spoken of in terms like days of Yahweh. So Revelation 6 through 11, for instance, you have that series of judgments. Uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the locusts, that very much comes from Joel, the plagues of Egypt, things of that nature. And Revelation 13 through 19, you have the judgment against the beast, the false prophet, and whore Babylon. That's described as the pouring out of the unmixed cup of the wrath of God, which very evocative of days of Yahweh and the prophets. And in terms of the plagues, what the prophets promised Israel and the nations, very much is his continuity there. John is definitely being shown the things going on in his own time in terms of what has happened in the past of the people of God. And when we actually look at Roman history after John's vision, um, we can definitely see the pattern that looks like a day of Yahweh, to be quite frankly. Uh, because when John saw Revelation, Rome was predominantly pagan, as almost all cultures had been beforehand. They were the beneficiaries of a rich and developed situation that they thought would never end. I mean, why would they? The last really apocalyptic event had happened uh, around 1,200, 1,300 years earlier. And... Um, they lived in this wealth and, and, and civilization that seems strong and robust. They're very much like a lot of people are now. But there was a series of events that began around 150 that would change all that profoundly. There was an Antonine Plague of, of 165 to 180. It caused a lot of distress in the empire. It weakened the army and trade. After 235, the leadership of the empire became really more weak than strong for the rest of his existence. We see a lot of weakness with, with certain moments where you get certain uh, leaders who get their act together, you know, Diocletian, Constantine, uh, Theodosius, and so on and so forth. But a lot of times these guys are, are having to arise first by kind of calming the chaos. But the chaos was the worst from about 235 to 280, where there are emperors constantly being proclaimed, fighting among one another, depleting army resources, sapping nerve and strength. And at the same time, you've got another plague, an even worse plague, the Cyprian Plague of 249 to 262. It reduces the population of Alexandria, for instance, by 62%. Uh, really starts starving the empire of people and resources. And the Roman War period is ending at this entire time. There's a global cooling, which is being caused by natural variations in the Earth's orbit, and then later on by volcanic eruptions. And this would reach its nadir in the middle of the 6th century, when you had basically a decade where you barely had any sun, uh, and win basically winter for a decade. 
And so fields weren't as fertile. Drought and famine became difficulties in a lot of places. And it's not just in Rome. It's in the whole area around it. So now you have the surrounding nations also being beset by plague and famine and, and pressures. And so now you start getting barbarian invasions from the north. The Sassanids replaced the Parthians in what we call Iran today, and they would defeat a lot of Roman armies in the 3rd century. And so the Roman Empire around 280, Diocletian's kind of able to bring it all back together, looks on the surface to be the same as it is in 180, but it's profoundly different. It's more localized, it's more fearful, it's more authoritarian, and it doesn't get any better. Uh, you'd have more invasions of barbarians and leading to the division of the empire and the collapse of the world Western Roman Empire by the 5th century. And, of course, there's this powerful long legacy of Rome uh, in both the West and in the East. But by 600, uh, the judgment on Rome prophesied in Revelation had come to pass. Uh, it, it is a complete shell of what it was. Uh, the power base is gone. Um, Christianized in Christendom in many ways beyond anything else. But uh it has become humiliated and in some respects what we call quote-unquote civilization the kind of things the romans enjoyed in the first and second centuries uh were not fully realized again until the 19th century yes there were you know certain other points at which you know certain things kind of got better but on the whole travel um, technologically, it took to the 19th century. That, that's a long time. That's a large uh, collapse. And so these events do bear the hallmarks of the prophetic days of Yahweh, a series of disasters, national, natural and artificial, internal, external, that brought a proud, haughty society to utter ruin. And all of it we could describe without any reference to God or his work if we wanted to. And so such a day of Yahweh has been visited upon Rome, according to what's been made known in Revelation. That Revelation speaks of these things in terms of the judgments that the prophets saw happening as earlier nation states. We know as Romans talked about in terms of four Babylon. Um, and these judgments follows a series of patterns. Jesus is still Lord. We are open to the possibility that nation states since have seen a day of Yahweh. Now we've got to be very careful because everything that we've spoken of already, with the events we've talked about with Israel, Syria, and Judah, Egypt, and Rome, there are explicit prophecies that are directed at specific peoples and nations in specific time frames. We're on very, we're on decently firm ground. For Going beyond this, either if we look even further back or moving forward, means that we recognize a more speculative thing. Yes, Jesus is Lord of Lord and King of Kings in Revelation 19.16. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. God has an eternal plan he's still working out in Jesus in Ephesians 3.11. And as God made known to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 18, he makes some nations rise and some to fall. Um, so God is able to do all of these things, but we can never know it for certain how God is behind the events that are happening, especially uh, for specific reasons. How many times have we seen somebody get on television anymore when a disaster happens and says, God is punishing these people for this or that sin? And it's always, of course, the sin that the guy talking about kind of emphasizes. And the, the thing about it is that without an explicit word from God, we can see a judgment happening. We can look at the various things being exposed, uh, but we're very haughty if we're saying this is the reason for it. Uh, we need to be very careful about these things. But it is interesting, isn't it, that after Rome, we've seen a series of nation states rise and fall according to similar patterns. They arrogate against God's purposes. They're humbled by natural and artificial disasters from internal and external sources. All the medieval fiefdoms, Spain, the Habsburgs, 
France, England, the Nazis, the USSR. As an American, you read Revelation 17 and 18, and it gets a little uncomfortable because we can see a little bit more of poor Babylon in our country than we care to admit. So even if we cannot know if any specific event or series of events represents a day of Yahweh against a nation, or what specific judge purposes are being accomplished in that kind of judgment, uh, we also need to be careful if, to just assume that whatever events take place just happen to happen, or they can just be explained by social political forces, that, that all that can be said about them uh, comes from, the, from uh, history books, from historians. That in all such things, we need to see how God is getting the glory, and understand that God is always at work in such things. Another big challenge that we have when we talk about these kinds of judgments is that when we talk about God and judgment, uh, people start thinking that the world's going to end. They've allowed the most drastic interpretation of apocalyptic passages to inform how they view God's judgment. So they expect, well, if there's a judgment of God, the sun's going to get dark and the moon will be turned to blood. There'll be all these plagues and disasters. The universe is going to melt. It's going to all blow up. Um, for instance, from Joel 2, from Second Peter 3. But when we actually step back and look at the references, the way that the prophets talk about those events, they're not literally the end of the world. They represent changes in kingdoms and rule, the interruption of the status quo. So, for instance, in Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, Ezekiel talks about how I will darken the sun in Egypt. And then he goes on to explain in verse 11, he's bringing the army of Babylon against them. Um, in Acts 2, 14 through 36, all that Joel had prophesied, the moon turning to blood, the sun to darkness, was fulfilled in what was accomplished in the day of Pentecost. And even 2 Peter 3, 1 through 11, uh, the destruction of the world uh, by fire is parallel to the uh, way the world was destroyed in the flood. Now, the world's not literally destroyed in the flood, physically destroyed in the flood. It, it certainly tore up a bunch of things. And in Romans 8, 18 through 23, we get the hope that the world will be more transformed than destroyed when the Lord returns. So apocalyptic prophecies are interpreted properly. They may seem disappointing to a lot of people if they've been expecting Hollywood-style magic and fireworks. But we shouldn't diminish these days of Yahweh because of that. Because the world may not end, but it does represent the end of a world. If you think about these days of Yahweh that we've mentioned, they all represented a major shift in the way people lived. Their kingdoms that had existed for hundreds or maybe thousands of years before they're destroyed. Their pride is now humbled. Their glory is now in ruins. And if you were one of the people living in Egypt at that time or in Judah at that time, and you experienced the day of Yahweh, sure, the world might not have ended, but your world just did. Israel and Judah were humbled and exiled. Assyria was no longer a going concern. Egypt had been a flourishing kingdom for 2,600 years and would now spend the next 2,600 years almost under the dominion of others. The Romans, watching, rulers of the world, watching their empire crumble to dust. And so even if the day of Yahweh is not as apocalyptic as many might think, it is sufficiently apocalyptic for those who endure it. That if we experience the horrors they did, we might better appreciate the metaphors that the Bible uses to describe them. There's two other very important things about days of Yahweh, uh, that they're a day of revelation and, and, and lead to renewal. A day of Yahweh is a time of judgment and distress. It's the end of a world, even if it's not the end of the world. And they are apocalyptic in the truest sense of that term. Apocalyptic, apocalypse, comes from the Greek word apokalypsis, which means an unveiling or a revealing. And in a day of Yahweh, a lot of things are unveiled and revealed. People find the pretense of a lot of things exposed for what they are, mere pretense. 
we find that things that we trusted, uh, anything other than God, uh, are idolatrous. They're not able to save us. Uh, we think, well, we have money built up. Well, money can't save you in the day of God. Uh, if you can't eat gold, so sometimes money can't provide much benefit. Uh, we are seen as weak and frail. We're exposed as humans that all of the trappings of civilization that we built up around us to try to provide a comfort and and a shield uh, are not as strong as we thought they were. In times of distress, whether they're real or perceived distress, people expose what they truly believe in and what they really are trusting in. And we see idols that are made known. And we see what really people are really about. We see faulty reasoning exposed. Um, we see pretenses and externalities that are shed. People really expose who they are in times of difficulty. And we say about this as human beings, right, that our character is revealed in what we do when we think no one is watching, right? Uh, character and disposition and faith are, are really revealed when we undergo trials and tests. We really see what, who a person is when they're undergoing difficulty. And if that's true of us as human beings, it's also true of us as nations. And, and of civilizations. And it would be true in a day of Yahweh. And the other thing is that once all such things are exposed, we can't go back to what we thought was normal. Because you can't just put back everything that was just exposed back into a box. You can't just pretend it all didn't happen. But a day of Yahweh is not the end of the world. And uh, prophets always extend out hope that there can be renewal that comes in the wake of a day of Yahweh. And, and it's kind of a thing with societies as much as with human beings, that success breeds complacency. But failure and difficulty and trial can lead to development of character. You know, the testing of our faith in First Peter 1 uh, is what really um, is, is able to be the, that gold refined by fire that really glorifies Jesus on the day of his visitation. And whether we care to admit it or not, it's, it's in our difficulties, it's in our weaknesses being exposed that we, we really are forced to grow. Um, we haven't identified the collapse of the Bronze Age as a day of Yahweh in 1200-1100 BC, but it shares a lot of the characteristics. Uh, a, a tremendous loss uh, across the whole uh, Bron uh, Near Eastern world, from Mycenae and Greece, eventually to Egypt, uh, the Hittite Empire, uh, Mesopotamia, all undergo uh, collapse or weakness. But out of it flourishes a lot of things eventually. The Iliad and the Odyssey come out. Uh, Greece is on its trajectory. No longer the kind of uh, uh, city-state with a king on top of it, with the palace as the emphasis, but a much more uh, polis, where the people together uh, tend to co collaborate more, uh, leading to the flowering experiments of, of the classical age. Um, it is the shrinkage of the empires that allows for the flourishing of the Israelite state in the days of Saul, David, Solomon, and the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. The day against, of Yahweh against Judah was a profound existential crisis, and we don't want to diminish that. But the remnant persevered uh, and trusted in Yahweh did so in a way that the previous generation had not, and it gave them the strength to endure far greater things and allowed there to be a remnant of people who believed in the one true God when Jesus returned, in a way that if Israel had not gone through that crisis, it would maybe be doubtful that such a group would exist. As we can see in Daniel, Lamentations, Ezra, Nehemiah. Our historical research these days, in archaeology and texts and other things, we're learning just how scientifically advanced Roman civilization had become. But the tragic thing is that they were using their technologies for plaything for the rich and the elite. 
uh, things using steam power and things of that nature. Uh, when these same technologies were rediscovered and put to use in the competitive marketplace within the past 300 years, it led to the Industrial Revolution that has improved the quality of life for most humans beyond the imagination of anybody in ancient Rome. And we got to remember, the prophets of Israel did not just prophesy days of Yahweh. They also prophesied the restoration and renewal of his people afterward. We see in Jeremiah 30 and 31. So we see in Isaiah uh, 40 through 66. That's what we see in Ezekiel. 33 through 47. Um, we, we, we tend to focus on what is lost in disasters and judgment. We tend to focus on lost civilization. Uh, but we should not neglect hope, restoration, and renewal. That out of the trials, some things got better. Some things improved eventually. That doesn't change the greatness of the loss. That doesn't mean you want a day of Yahweh. But it shows that there can be hope. And so these are the days of Yahweh. They're God's judgment on nations. They represent natural and artificial disasters with internal and external dangers. Now the prophets spoke of them in the days of Israel, and John demonstrates they have relevance since. The days of Yahweh are not the end of the world, but they are certainly the end of a world. And days of Yahweh expose and reveal weaknesses, arrogance, presumptions, intentions. And these cannot easily be brushed aside afterwards. The days of Yahweh were disastrous for those who endure them, but in their wake, restoration and renewal are possible. What's important for all of us to recognize is that all these days of Yahweh, in their own way, point forth to the ultimate day of Yahweh, the day of resurrection, when the Lord Jesus will return and the hearts and thoughts of everyone will be exposed. Those, of, those who are in Christ will obtain the resurrection of life, but those who are not will obtain the resurrection of condemnation. This is the consistent New Testament witness. We do not know when this day of Yahweh will come, but we must all be ready serving the Lord Jesus, whether he returns today or in a thousand years. And that's why we encourage everyone to serve God, that they may not be exposed on the day of Yahweh, that they may obtain life in Christ. Please join me while we pray. Father, hallowed be your name. We're thankful for the blessings of life that you've given us. We're thankful for your care and provision for us in Jesus, for um, the strength you provide in your spirit and the message you've made known uh, by him through your word. We pray, Father. Uh, that we may not endure a, a day of judgment and trial as you have done to the nations in the past. Um, we, we pray, Father, that you would give us the strength and wisdom to overcome and endure whatever uh, we may have to overcome and endure. And that uh, if it is for us to endure times of distress and judgment and trial, that we would grow in our love for you in them and in our character, that we would manifest your Son in the day of trial and distress and that you would be glorified and honored in all things. We again, pray all these things in the name of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're again so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been benefited by this. If you have, we encourage you to please share this message on social media and uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you found it. If you have a uh, desire to talk about these things more, if you'd like to learn more about us or check us out, please find us online at VenezuelaChristChrist.org and also on social media. Uh, may uh, God bless you and keep you. And all now may well go well with you. Have a great day. Take care. Goodbye.